You are listening to a Geek Network interview. Be sure to hit the follow button to get notified when a new episode is available. You can also visit us at geek-network.com for your guide to the geek entertainment news you love. Created for geeks, by geeks, and remember to always geek responsibly. Hello, everybody. We have a very special guest tonight. I am very excited to be speaking to you today. Um, I know you can't see me. Uh, it's all virtual, but uh, my hands are shaking. I'm really excited to have, you know, the man, the myth, the legend, Mark Guggenheim. Thank you so much for your time today. How are you doing? Oh, really good. Thanks for uh, inviting me. I, from that buildup, I, I expected there to be another guest on the show. <laughs> it's just you, um, but you're such an awesome writer i'm really excited to again to be able to speak to you um and all the oh, projects you have up and coming thanks so much i really appreciate it i'm excited to talk talk to you awesome and you know uh just a quick question here just to kind of break the ice um you know for our listeners um just so you have a little bit of background about you um you know you have worked on multiple tv shows uh, you helped launch uh the the arrowverse for uh the cw um so exactly how are you uh making that jump from you know writing tv uh like teleplays screenplays to uh you know jumping to writing graphic novels and comic books well here's my dirty secret so my my dirty secret is that i've actually been i've been working in television for 23 years but i've been writing comic books for 17 um so i've been kind of straddling the two uh for for quite a while now but it, it's funny most people don't know that it's 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 kind of strange because it seems as if the vast majority of people either know my television work and only my television work or my comic book work and only my comic book work uh and and there's strangely very little cross-pollination between the two Really, that's interesting uh, that, you know, yeah. they don't know you for both. That just they know you one medium or they know you for another medium. It's really interesting. It's really <laughs> strange. It's like there's two marks running around um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, w- one does TV and one does comics. But there, there's only one of me um, and uh, <laughs> I do both. And I love doing both. Uh, it, you know, one, you know, the comic book work really feeds the television work and the television work really feeds the comic book work. So it's kind of like one cycle. They kind of work together. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, it, it's fine. The grass is always greener on the other side. So I like to work on as many other sides as possible because the, you know, there's there's pros and cons to every medium you work in and every industry you work in. And uh, I like, you know, diversifying myself so that I can kind of take advantage. I mean, yes, you have to suffer through the cons of all the different ones, but mm-hmm. um, I like taking advantage of all the different pros. Gotcha. That's awesome. And uh, what would you say, you know, I know you said kind of come hand in, they work hand in hand, but what would you say um, is the biggest difference uh, when it comes to writing screenplays, teleplays compared to comics and graphic novels? Um, you know, it's funny. I get, I get asked this question a lot and I think my answer kind of changes depending on when you catch me, but lately I've really, notice the difference between the notes I get in TV and film versus the notes I get in comics. Um, the Particularly on the TV side, the notes I get in comics are a million times better. Um, they're, they're always concise and to the point and always make the, the thing better. Um, and whereas I think in television, a lot of time, the notes process is kind of infected a little bit by a lot of politics. I don't mean like capital P politics. I mean, like little politics, (laughs) like, you know, like, okay, there's a lot of executives on this particular show and everyone's got to justify their jobs and everyone's got to earn their paycheck and, you know, that kind of stuff, as opposed to in comics, like the the editors are giving you notes um, or the licensors, like in the case of, you know, working with the folks at Lucasfilm on the Star Wars comics, they're they're giving you notes because they, they really do have a note. They're they're not trying to justify anything. They're they're giving you notes because they really do feel like 
um, you either can't do something or they feel like you can do something better. And more often than not, by the way, it's the latter. It's it's like they they really are giving you notes that do you know help improve things, not just simply trying to uh, you know gatekeep. Um, so I I prefer the the, the notes. Pro- process in comics uh, far more than I uh, prefer the notes <laughs> process in, in television. Yeah, because I've heard, uh, you know, different stories, watching different interviews with a couple of other writers for, you know, comic TV, um, that sort of thing. And I know since, you know, you're involved with uh, with the Arrowverse, um, you know, with um, when they had that episode with uh, the Suicide Squad, they weren't allowed to really say Suicide Squad since the movie was going to come out in a few months later, you know, so I totally get it. I understand that whole medium and what you're trying to say. Well, you know, it's funny, I, you know, I, a lot of people were sort of angry on our behalf um, about the Suicide Squad and, and you know, because first it was DC had asked us to use them and then later, like a year later, DC told us we couldn't use them. And and I think a lot of people kind of got offended on our behalf. And I, I will say, like, just to sort of set the record straight, it never really bothered me. Um, you know, I'm I'm very conscious of the fact that when you're when you're doing a show like Arrow or you're writing a a comic book uh, like Han Solo and Chewbacca, like you are you you don't own these characters. You are, you know, the temporary custodian of uh, of the people who really do own the characters and. Um, I always try to be very respectful of that. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. kind of like, you know, I'm someone who's, I'm going into someone's house, you know, mm-hmm. um, I'm going to try very hard not to trash the place. And if if they want, you know, to change, you know, the wallpaper from, you know, uh, pinstripes to polka dots, well, that's, that's, it's their house, you know, that they have every right. To. Um, so, you know, it, it didn't bother me, um, you know, that we, you know, we could use Suicide Squad until we couldn't. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, the same thing was very true for Deathstroke. You know, um, there there were you know periods of Arrow uh, where we we couldn't do Deathstroke, uh, and then there were other periods of Arrow where we could. And you know, you just sort of I, my attitude was like, okay, we're gonna just respond to the given moment, and we're gonna t- follow our marching orders and know that those marching orders can and will and often do change. Right. And, you know, it, you know, uh, just from reading online and uh, again, re- watching those interviews, I completely understand why it had to be done. And I like your outlook on it as well. Um, that's awesome. Nice. I've had a lot of therapy. <laughs> and also, uh, you've mentioned um, uh, time and time that, you know, you you're working with a lot of your friends with these uh, upcoming projects, you, uh, comics that you're working on. So what was it like uh, working with uh, Howard uh, Chaikin again? Uh, it was a total blast. Um, you know, first of all, Howard, Howard's incredibly talented, but he's also a very warm and incredibly funny individual. And, you know, a, a lot of the gra- graphic novels and series that I'm releasing in, in you know, this month and the next couple of months is the result of work I did really at the start of the pandemic. Um, you know, the, the pandemic you know, started and like overnight production was shut down. Um, there were there was no TV show to work on. There was no movie to work on. Nothing was happening. Um, and I, I sort of took this sudden influx of free time to make good on what had been my 2020 New Year's resolution, which was uh, I really wanted to get back into create your own comics. And I just started uh, writing some of these, you know, graphic novels and, and series uh, just on spec, writing them, you know, kind of just to see where they would go. And halfway through, like, I would say, I would say like, you know, maybe the, the first 20 pages of uh, what turned into Too Dead to Die, the graphic novel with Howard, I realized that the imagery that I was picturing in my head was all drawn by Howard. Um, Howard and I had worked together uh, back at Marvel on Blade and, and Wolverine. And for whatever reason, I was envisioning Howard's art in my head without, you know, necessarily deciding it or, or, you know, affirmatively thinking it. So that when I had like the first 20 or so pages finished, I, you know, sent them off to Howard and say, listen, this is something I'm noodling around with. Um, I I keep picturing your work in it. Uh, Is this something you'd like to do together? 
Um, and Howard, much to my my great joy, said yes. Um, and that was the start of, like I said, what became Too Dead to Die. Um, and working with Howard is is just an absolute delight. Um, he's, you know, he is a pro's pro. He he has forgotten more about comic book storytelling than than most writers and artists uh, will ever know. Um, and the fact that, you know, he works with, you know, um, you know, in, an incredible uh, colorist in, in Gustavo and an incredible uh, letterer and designer in Ken um, just is the icing on the cake. Um, so it really made the whole package uh, come together and really sing, uh, I think, in a, a really satisfying way. Okay, that's awesome. And, you know, uh, when it comes to writing stories like this, and especially working with your friends, um, you know, that you guys can give each other feedback, what works, what doesn't work, have you, you know, do you usually uh, present the script, um, or what you've written, and like, I kind of want this, you know, panel here to look like this? Or, uh, you know, do you just give, uh, give your artists, whoever you're working with at that time, uh, the script, and then they come with uh, the the artwork themselves? That's an excellent question. Um, 9.9 .9 times out of 10, I work what's called full script, which is I'm, you know, sort of specifying like page one, five panels, panel one is this, panel two is that, panel three is this. But uh, every single time I, I work with an artist, and this is, you know, goes double for artists I've, you know, have a friendship with or have a past working history with, they know that the way I work is I, I kind of consider the script not a blueprint or not a dictum of what to draw but rather this is what i'm this is the best approximation of what i'm seeing in my mind's eye as i write um and i recognize that it may not be the best way to tell the story i always give whoever i'm working with the license to change things up to tell the story not the best way that I know how, but rather the best way they know how, because they're the ones who are doing the art. Um, and I would always rather have the great version of what's in their head than the mediocre version of what's in mine. So it's it's really whatever they can feel they can best execute on. And sometimes that's identical to what I wrote out. And other times they will, you know, take me up on the offer and, and change things and, you know, subtract a panel, add a panel, um, change a shot, um, you know, change a page turn. Um, as far as I'm concerned, as long as we're both telling the same story, um, you know, the sky's really the limit and, and they can do whatever, you know, whatever they feel is best to service the story. Um, and, you know, I, but I always, you know, say I'm, I'm providing information in the form of this is how I'm seeing it in my head for what it's worth. And, and sometimes that will be helpful and other times it won't be helpful. Um, but, uh, that it, it's the start of what is supposed to be a dialogue between me and the artist. I love that. You know, really, it sounds like you, whoever you're working with, you have a really good communication with. That's awesome. And I think that's important when it comes to telling a story. <laughs> yeah, I know I, it's it's a wonderful collaboration. You know, again, talking about like the pros and cons of, uh, you know, of TV versus uh, versus comics. One of the things that I, I love about comics is it's a collaboration the way television is, but it's a much more intimate collaboration. It's really, you know, I mean, obviously you'll bring in a letter and a colorist and editors and stuff, but at the end of the day, like the majority of the experience is just you and this other person, this you, you and the artist and the, the sort of rhythms you get into and the back and forth and that, you know, the things I have to do on an empathy side, just to be able to get another human being to understand what I'm seeing in my head. Uh, that's really, it's an interesting, very fruitful process as far as I'm concerned. Um, and I, you know, I, I like, you know, I like working with an artist that way. Mm -hmm. And then I also want to go ahead and ask, um, today, uh, I'm sorry, ugh, Too Dead to Die has been out for a little over a month. Uh, and for those who haven't, uh, read it or come across it yet, what can, um, readers expect from it? Um, well, I, I, the way I always sort of describe it to people is it's, 
it basically, you know, James Bond's final adventure. Um, you know, he he's in his seventies. Obviously, it's not James Bond, but it's a it's you know we're playing with James Bond as an archetype, um, and it's you know the, this character who is a super spy, you know, very much a relic of the Cold War and of the eighties and nineties, and he's now in his seventies, and he discovers that of the many, many, many women he's bedded over the years, uh, one of them turns out had a daughter and that daughter is now in her twenties and is in danger. And he, you know, comes out of retirement, uh, takes himself out of mothballs for one last adventure. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's kind of a blast um, because, you know, in addition to Howard drawing the present day story. Um, we also have Michael Golden and Jose Garcia Lopez drawing short, sh eh, sorry, drawing <laughs> short stories. That's hard to say. Um, drawing short stories um, about Simon Cross, the super spy in his salad days, uh, you know, when he was at his prime. Um, and in addition to that, I also wrote a prose uh, short story. It's my first piece of prose in a very, very long time, um, which is a sort of a, you know, a, a short story in the Ian Fleming uh, mold uh, where Simon Cross, uh, let's just say, has a cross, no pun intended, with <laughs> a British super spy. Okay. And, you know, um, I was reading the introduction um, to the graphic novel, um, so I just have one burning question here. Did you ever find out why uh, Simon Cross CIA abruptly ended after issue 36? <laughs> um, no, I never learned, uh, but I, I do suspect that it had something to do with uh, Jeffrey Harris's uh, death from autoerotic asphyxiation. That's another word that's hard to say a lot. <laughs> gotcha. No, uh, I read that comment too, but I was like, hey, I can't just be that. I mean, there has to be something more to it, but I guess we'll never know. <laughs> well, you know, it, it, maybe, you know, my hope is that we'll learn more uh, in the future and maybe we can put that as uh, the subject of another graphic novel. Maybe. I mean, it would be pretty awesome if you can tie it in somehow. <laughs> um, I, I love, you know, I love things that are meta and I love things that interconnect and um, you know, I think that's one of the, the things that are, are fun to do, uh, in the genre space. Awesome. <laughs> I love good crossovers on meta humor as well, and anything you can tie into the meta. So that's great. <laughs> and, uh, so the cover for Fragmentation, uh, your next graphic novel, they'll be hitting comic book shelves in the next few days, uh, actually January 25th to be exact, um, kind of reminds me of uh the crisis on infinite earth's cover uh can we expect any crazy time travel or parallel earth or universes in this story um there's no parallel universes in this one but it it is uh a it, it does have the component of time travel and the reason i say component is is that time travel uh in fragmentation operates in a way very different from uh the way time travel typically operates in comic books um, insofar as in, in this story, there are these windows uh, called fragmentations that are opening up um, throughout the world. And through each window, you can you can walk through and enter uh, the same location, uh, but in a different period of time, usually coinciding with a key moment in history. Um, so, for example, you can walk uh, from, you know, Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, 2023, uh, to uh, the attack on Pearl Harbor at the start of World War II. Gotcha. So are you like a big history buff or did you really have to like, you know, do your research on historical events to make the story, you know, come to life? I, I actually had to do a lot of research for this one. Yeah, I'm not a huge history buff. I, I wouldn't say I'm completely ignorant with respect to history, but it's not a passion of mine. Um, rather, here I was I was kind of interested in, I, I love Chris Nolan's movies. Um, and I, in many ways, I think Chris Nolan is, a, is, is sort of his own brand or his own subgenre. Um, but I was I was intrigued by the idea of sort of doing a Chris Nolan movie by way of a family drama. Um, and, and that's sort of what became fragmentation, this sort of story of this global phenomenon that happens to, you know, uh, be told through the eyes of uh, this this, you know, small nuclear family. 
Gotcha. I mean, hey, you know, Christopher Nolan is a comic book nerd, uh, you know, geek reader, whatever you want to call it. Um, maybe he'll read your story and might want to pick it up for a screenplay. Make a ah, movie. <laughs> I, sh- I should be so lucky. I should be so lucky. <laughs> and uh, oh, go ahead. No, that sounds nice. From your podcast to God's ears. <laughs> Let's make it happen. We'll do, you we'll know, we'll sign something. <laughs> as, as my daughter says, we'll manifest it. Yes. <laughs> my roommate says that too. <laughs> See, it's, it's not, not just my daughter. Yeah. And that there. And uh, you have so many projects going on at the moment, such as, you know, Star Wars comics for Marvel, um, Disney, a uh, few shows that are, if not, will be streaming on Netflix. Um, you know, can't forget uh, Simon, Simon Cross is going to be adapted into a show as well. How do you find the time to be involved in so many projects, uh, writing TV, writing TV um, and writing comic books all at the same time? You know, I, I get asked that question a lot and I've come to sort of accept the fact that I have made a, a studied attempt not to figure out the answer. I, I'm a lot like Wiley Coyote where I can run across the canyon uh, and sort of hang in midair as long as I don't look down. Um, you know, I will say in the case of like, you know, Too Dead to Die and Fragmentation and uh, Torrent, which is a series I have coming out through Image uh, also in February, um, th- those those three projects were all uh, sort of written in, in various stages during the pandemic. And it's just a weird bit of comic book happenstance that they're all coming out within the same three month period. Um, so that's a long way of saying that that some of the you know amount of, of proliferation out there is is a little uh, it's a little deceptive, um, but I also you know I I just I I tend to you know I, I tend to be just pretty diligent in terms of my work ethic and I always try to make sure that you know every single day I'm I'm you know I'm writing something or I'm moving some ball down the field in some way shape or form um and uh you know having deadlines helps it's a, it's a <laughs> yeah i guess that makes sense having deadlines <laughs> it uh yeah. definitely i'm it's fine i'm a very deadline driven person usually like I'll, I'll end a meeting or a call or a zoom uh with a producer or an editor or you name it whoever i'm in business with and my my first question is always when do you need the spot um and and it doesn't even matter what their answer is it's not like i'm looking for a particular answer but um i find it helpful to like know okay that's going in my calendar for that date like uh that it it takes the guesswork out of it and just having a a concrete sense of what is on my plate at any given moment in time is is a big part of you know sort of keeping my sanity Gotcha. And I'm pretty sure that, you know, making sure the bills are getting paid, uh, that's probably good motivation as well, right? <laughs> uh, that never hurts. Hey, I got I got two kids uh, that I got put through college and, uh, you know, that ain't cheap. <laughs> and then uh, for Torrent, without uh, giving away too much, uh, what can you tell us about, and I'm probably going to butcher this, uh, but what can you tell us about the uh, pra- uh, Praetorians? Oh, the Praetorians. Yeah. Um, well, the Praetorians are, are um, you know, sort of my send up of the Avengers and the Justice League. Uh, you know, what what's really cool about this book is it's it started off with a very simple premise, which was almost a thought experiment. It was, could I turn a character like Spider-Man into a character like the Punisher? And just from that small nugget, Justin Greenwood, my collaborator on this, and I just kept adding on these these little layers and layers and layers until we we realized that we weren't telling a story about one single hero, but rather a universe of heroes. And that's that's really where the Praetorians come in, which is you know we you know we we're operating in a uh in a universe that's populated by many superheroes um kind of like the marvel or dc universes um so i kind of like to sort of describe torrent as it's a way of introducing a new comic book universe sort of through the vantage of a single city okay all right yeah that's okay i i can dig it 
Thank you for that little uh, nugget of knowledge. Now I know what to expect. <laughs> it's a fun. It's a fun book because it. You know, one of the things that, um, you know, that that excites me about it is it, it's very much sort of inspired by Frank Miller's uh, writing and art on Daredevil, and um, both his runs on Daredevil, I should say, and it's got like kind of very a very intentional old school bronze age throwback feel while at the same time hopefully feeling you know new and original and different so we're trying to like do something different uh by playing with the things that you thought were familiar yeah and you know uh just by reading the little uh snippets um from this uh, the little summary um i'm excited to pick this up on february 15th so i'm I'm going to pick up this run. I'm really excited. Um, I just have so many questions, uh, but I don't want you to give anything away. Or, you know, NDAs can kind of suck too. So not going to get into that. <laughs> that's that's totally fair. The one, the one thing I can say, I don't think it's spoiling anything. I was, you know, it, it's, there's a lot, uh, there's a lot that it Torrent owes to Arrow, um, including, you know, not just the tone, but also, the almost reckless way that we blaze through story um and it's it's uh you know it, it really is it's a it's a crazy wild ride uh and you you won't believe how much happens in the first five issues it's it's sort of the uh the opposite of decompression in comics awesome i like it and then so uh part of the summary says uh the world's most happy-go-lucky hero michelle metcalf also known as Cracker Jack, crosses the line, becomes a vigilante. Uh, so uh, the events that push her over the edge, um, you know, would, I just heard you mention Arrow. So are they kind of also about, you know, maybe Bruce Wayne proportion, proportionate wise, like that kind of big push, you know, that sets her off? <laughs> um, you know, uh, basically tragedy. Yes. I mean, tragedy is what sets her off. I think, you know, the, the thing about, you know, Bruce Wayne and the thing that Bruce Wayne and Frank Castle and Oliver Queen all have in common, at least the Oliver Queen, you know, of, of Arrow um, is is tragedy and and coming back from, uh, you know, fr from a great loss uh, with a vendetta. Um, so there's there's quite uh, a, a bit of that going on uh, here in Torrent. Um, and I, I was interested in, in a way that I didn't get to explore with Arrow, really get at the fine line between what makes a hero and what makes a vigilante. Which leads me to the next question. Um, so Torrent will have us question what really makes a hero um, and a vigilante. Will this comic book series have us question uh, the morality of villains as well? Will we be saying, okay, maybe the villains aren't so bad? Um, you know, not in the first arc, but in the second arc. One of the things uh, that I'm I'm doing uh, is I'm constructing the arcs on Torrent to basically be around five to six issues apiece, um, and they're they're all kind of designed to you know be their their own sort of story with a beginning, middle, and end. So, like issue five will end with a, a very sort of concrete, hopefully unexpected ending. And then issue six will pick up with the second arc. Um, and uh, in that second arc, I, I'm going to be introducing a new bad guy and and definitely playing around with that notion of, you know, is the villain the hero of their own story? Gotcha. Okay. And with that being said, I'll probably, you know, after I pick up issue five, I'll probably tweet something that you've like oh my god this is the greatest thing or like oh my god you broke my heart <laughs> oh well hey look i hope so that's that's always the name of the game right when you when you can pull it off it's really nice yeah and then so uh the other question is uh with your 17 years of writing comics uh what would you say uh is a lot more fun to write you know uh, would you say it's uh writing a hero or writing a villain oh good question um I gotta say, I'm 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 a sucker. I I prefer writing the hero. Um, but you know, sometimes I don't know. Like you know, sometimes you know, I've done Wolverine and Punisher, and and they're sort of almost like antiheroes sometimes. And sometimes that is the most enjoyable. Um, 
you know, even Batman in his own way is a bit of an anti-hero. Um, so I think it, 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 it probably also, if I'm being honest, depends on my mood. <laughs> how, how <laughs> um, you know, I certainly like how I've been feeling in the last three years of pandemic is very different from how I was feeling prior to that. I think the pandemic affected a lot of us. So <laughs> I stand sure. with you. <laughs> yeah. You can't, you just can't avoid it. You know, it just, it, it just is what it is. Um, but I, you know, and I, and I think, you know, in, in some ways, um, you know, of, of the various books I've got coming out right now, Torn is probably the one that, that probably embodies that pandemic era darkness more than anything else. Okay. All right. And with your knowledge of comics, uh, you know, what makes a good hero and what makes a really good villain? Well, I think, well, I'll take the, the second part first. I, I think always what makes a good villain is a point of view that is not villainous. Um, you know, the villain, no one wakes up in the morning and looks themselves in the mirror and say, ah, I'm going to be evil today. Um, you know, they, they all think that they have some sort of, you know, righteousness to them. Um, so I think the best, the best villains are the ones who, you know, are, are their own true believers. As for, as far as what makes, you know, the best hero, I think, you know, it's kind of like what makes the best human being. It's, you know, it's empathy, it's bravery, it's honesty, it's sensitivity. Um, and, you know, and, and, and a willingness to persevere despite all odds. Um, I think that's why, you know, I, I probably enjoy writing heroes more than villains, just because that's a, a much more positive headspace to be able to occupy. Yeah, that's very true. And then, um, so this is from our editor here. Um, so do you or uh, your therapist have any advice on why, uh, you know, our editor, uh, Jackie Daytona, is, is always rooting for the villain? <laughs> that's a good question um well let's see jackie um always rooting for the villain oh maybe because on some level the the villain is speaking to a fantasy you have about acting out against authority how close did i get he says he loves the answer <laughs> All right. All right. There you go. Here to help. He'll run and he'll run with this, it. <laughs> this is what, by the way, this is what you get. This is what, this is what you get for, uh, for basically what is also like 25 years worth of therapy. <laughs> hey, it's good. Therapy is a good thing. I'm a huge believer in it. I'm a, I'm a big believer in therapy. I'm a big believer in medication. Um, I'm a big believer in, you know, putting as much towards your mental health as, as we do for our physical health. Definitely. We, you know, we, we truly need it. Maybe not everybody, but you know, I I am a supporter of uh, mental health therapy as well. <laughs> and out of Arrow and Legends of Tomorrow, uh, what show did you prefer writing for? Ooh, that's tough. That's tough. Um, that's like asking me to pick between my kids. Um, <laughs> I, you know, yeah, I don't. I don't. It's funny. I don't think I had a, a preference really. Um, you know, it it was usually like by the time I was finished with an arrow script, I was ready for the palate cleanser of, of writing a Legends of Tomorrow and and kind of vice versa. Um, so those years I was co-running both shows, it was kind of nice to be able to just literally bounce back and forth between the two. Um, so, yeah, I couldn't could not choose. Um, couldn't choose between my babies. <laughs> I understand. And. You know, um, Legends of Tomorrow did start off with, um, you know, with season one kind of following the the same tropes uh, as Arrow, just being kind of like dark. Um, and then season two kind of changed the whole dynamic. Um, whose idea was that? Or, uh, you know, what made you guys decide to break away from, you know, the Arrow norm and, you know, just completely go in a different direction with Legends of Tomorrow? Well, you know, it's funny. Um, I, I think it really kind of started when we were even in the editing room on the Legends pilot. Because um, I remember, like, we went into it sort of thinking like, oh, it's the Avengers. It's our version of the Avengers. But then mm -hmm. watching it, especially the scene in the 70s with the, uh, you know, the bar fight, 
to Love Will Keep Us Together, um, I, I I was like, oh, this isn't the Avengers, this is Guardians of the Galaxy. Um, but the thing is, is that typically you do a pilot and, and the pilot sort of reveals what the show is to you. And then you have that knowledge going into the rest of the season. Uh, we actually didn't have that luxury uh, on Legends. We went straight from the pilot into episode, you know, three, um, the, you know, the first two episodes being, being our pilot. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it wasn't until the end of season one that we're actual that we were actually able to sit back and look at what we had and go, oh, this show works better when it's funny. And this show works like, you know, the show works better when it, you know, when it leads it leans into the silly um like i said with that 70s you know bar fight scene it was always part of the dna of the show but we didn't have the opportunity to sort of take a look back and say oh this is this is the piece of the dna to really lean into until we had finished the whole first season so that's why there's such a big tonal shift between season one and season two um we we just you know, had the normal post-pilot, post-mortem. Um, it just so happened it took place after the season and not after the pilot. Okay. All right. And then since, uh, you know, we brought up your kids a little bit, uh, you know, we brought up Arrow. Uh, does seeing some of the Arrow cast return for the final season of Flash, uh, you know, feel like, you know, getting kids together now that they're all grown up or your kids, you know, living through that? Uh, yeah, like a, a little bit more like... Uh, finding out that my kids went to Thanksgiving, uh, but I wasn't invited. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, I'm glad the kids are having fun and I hope the turkey's good. Um, (laughs) You know, uh, but uh, I, you know, I I only found out about, you know, Stephen Amell uh, returning to Arrow uh, through the grapevine literally 24 hours before it hit the news. So um, I'm kind of, you know, experiencing it more the way people not involved with the show have been uh, experiencing it. Um, you know, so I'm I'm kind of you know it's a it's a surreal feeling. It's a it's a very very surreal feeling. Um, you know, I'm just glad that you know people seem to be excited. Um, you know, and and uh, Stephen had texted me from a set uh, a picture of him with David Ramsey in costume and. Uh, they seem to both be having a blast and a really good time. And that's that's uh, very important to me. That is awesome. And then, so Crisis on Infinite Earths is working its way on to its fifth anniversary. Uh, you said in a, in a previously in a perfect world, uh, someone would open their pockets to get a crossover event re-released in theaters. Is that any way in the realm of uh, possibility? You know, okay, I, I I guess I can finally talk about this. The statute of limitations had to have been passed. Um, we, right before the pandemic, we were planning on doing a big event through Fathom events uh, where we would release all five episodes of the crossover of Prices on Earth in theaters. Um, and, well, the pandemic hit and suddenly that went away um so it was it was great that warner brothers was so supportive of crisis and was we were all so enthusiastic about it we were we were going to make it like a really special sort of nationwide event um with like you know trivia contests and all sorts of bonus prizes and mm-hmm. you know actors uh, showing up in theaters to surprise fans it, it was going to be really really cool um it's funny i didn't realize it until you said it that we're kind of almost within spinning distance of the fifth anniversary um <laughs> you know I, look it would be great to do something for the fifth anniversary and and you know every time we did a crossover Warner Brothers got tired of me saying this but like uh, you know my, one of my unfulfilled sort of dreams would be to get in back in an editing room um hopefully with some visual effects money and and cutting, you know, the crossovers or any of the crossovers into a single narrative. Um, whether it got released in the theaters was was sort of like you know beside the point. It was like how do how do I you know recut it essentially as a as a movie and not a series of you know uh, episodes with commercial breaks in between them. Um, right. 
So, uh, you know, you never say never. Um, and, you know, David Zasloff has my number, or at the very least, he has Greg Berlanti's number. Um, <laughs> and uh, more likely Greg Berlanti's number. Um, and uh, you you never know, you know, if, if gosh, if, if there could be a Snyder cut, you know, I, I see no reason why they couldn't let us play around with, uh, you know, Crisis on Infinite Earths. Right. And uh, Crisis on Earth X, um, I think, those shows are still on Netflix. I know Netflix will actually, if you start it uh, the way it's supposed to start, I think, I believe with Arrow, um, it'll automatically skip to the next uh, crossover episode. Oh, that's yeah. cool. Hey, thank you, Netflix. I love that. Yeah, but, you know, they haven't done it with uh, Crisis so, on Infinite Earths, so I don't know if we'll ever get that. But it would be a cool idea to see it on the big screen, you know, just cut, piece all together. It, it would be cool. It would be cool. I've, I've, you know, I, I will be, I would be lying if I said that I hadn't given it thought as to how to do it over the years. And I would love also to be able to, you know, we, we kind of run, we kind of ran out of money uh, by the fifth hour. And uh, I, I would love to, you know, do some stuff uh, with visual effects to really spruce up the production value of that final fight with the anti-monitor. Um, that would be so, awesome. <laughs> You never know. You, you yeah. know, never seen it. Fingers crossed. And then I Maybe do want to say, <laughs> please call. Let's make it happen. And um, you know, I do want to say uh, R.I.P. But you know, uh, what would you say is uh, one of your favorite moments or feeling with uh, Kevin Conroy during Crisis on Infinite Earths? You know, I it is probably two moments that that most stick out in my mind uh the, the first is when i saw you know the first dailies um from his shoot um just you know just seeing him be bruce wayne embodying bruce wayne it, it was so much more than than just his voice like of course you know his voice is resonant and iconic and, and is bruce but he also embodied the character it was it was it wasn't just voice acting it was full body acting and mm -hmm. that was just that i i can't tell you what a what a huge jolt it just gave me um you know watching it in the editing room uh and, and then the second moment that you know uh very selfishly was we had done a uh sort of a a, a live uh crisis on infinite crisis on infinite earth sort of postmodern talk show that kevin uh smith hosted and uh that's where i got the chance to meet kevin um you know for the first time and and get to know him just even a little bit and what a warm and wonderful and you know just generous human being um it, that that was you know it, it, they, they say never meet your heroes but but truth be told uh if you get lucky you, you meet the right ones and and it is all you know and it's everything yeah, I've heard nothing but great things about you know Kevin Conroy. Yeah, it's all true. It's all true. <laughs> He's you know he was the real deal. I mean, uh, lo losing him was was a loss, you know, to to yeah. all of us. Absolutely. And <laughs> um, I just have this this one question. Um, you know, there's a lot of time travel in Legends of Tomorrow. So were you when it came to writing the very first episode with Bebo, in as we all know, that's a joke on Tickle Me Elmo, were you kind of just scratching your head of like what's like one great thing, you know, that we can bring back and people will, will understand? How did Bebo come into play? Um, I believe it was uh the brainchild of Kedo Shimizu, who was a longtime arrow writer before moving over to Legends. Um and it was we we knew that uh, Stein was gonna spoiler alert uh, was gonna <laughs> die in Crisis on Earth X, and we were building this relationship uh, up between you know Stein and his daughter Lily, and you know basically just Keto came into the room one day and was sort of telling this you know this story she this idea she had of 
you know, something like Tickle Me Elmo. It was like, for the longest time, it was Tickle Me Elmo was just, it was on the whiteboard, it was in the room, and it was part of the story, all the while knowing it would have to change because, of course, we would never get the rights to use the actual Tickle Me Elmo. But, but something, you know, that was like, you know, the cool toy back then where Stein would brave heaven and earth uh, in order to get for his his daughter. Um, and then, of course, the the you know, toy along with Stein would fall back in time and, um, you know, uh, be, be co-opted by Vikings. Um, you know, I, I give Keto all the, you know, uh, all the credit for the, you know, for the idea. I forget who came up with the name Bebo. Um, but, uh, at the time I was also working on a show called Troll Hunters with DreamWorks Animation. And I had asked Linda Chen, one of our concept artists to work up the design for this, you know, cute, cuddly character that eventually got named Bebo. Um, so uh, it was, you know, Keto's, Keto's brainchild and uh, Linda's uh, vision uh, that combined uh, like Voltron to form Bebo. <laughs> I love it. I mean, I, you have, I, hashtag Bebo a lot every time he would come up so I, I really loved Bebo <laughs> I, I do too I I love and I I love that people loved him so much that that just <laughs> really made us all very 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 happy <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> and um I'm just uh you know I did a little bit of research as well on your uh IMDb for uh future you know projects um it says that you are currently working on Gantz um is this going to be a an adaptation of the anime or you 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 guys rebooting the anime or how's that working oh out? yeah no it's it's basically it's a live action uh adaptation of of the anime and the manga um it's uh it was it was probably one of the hardest scripts i've ever read um I, you know halfway through it i really thought that i should just uh take the commencement you know uh, return the commencement money um because i was never going to crack it and uh ultimately uh I, I ended up with something that i think all of us really liked and uh we we had a director and i i believe we've lost the director so now we're looking for another director um you know but uh it, it's you know that that project's really near and dear to my heart because um you know it, it's like like i think like a lot of things in life the harder it is the sweeter it is mm -hmm. um that one was really really hard <laughs> No, uh, I've, you know, seen a few episodes here and there, and I know it's, it has a pretty big following, so can't wait to see it. That's why I had to bring it up. Yeah, and no, I appreciate it. <laughs> also, um, just, uh, you know, from a writing standpoint, um, you know, writing, again, TV, um, and you've also written for some animated uh, stories. So when it comes to doing some of the animated DC work, do you have more creative freedom uh, with it? And, you know, do you follow the comics a lot more directly as opposed to, you know, having to change certain things for uh, for the TV shows? That's a good question. Um, I would say it's a little bit of a mix of the two. Um, you know, on the one hand, we we always, you know, wanted the animated uh, tie-ins to, to be of the Arrowverse, you know, to, you know, fit into you know, both not just the continuity of the Arrowverse, but also its sensibilities. Um, mm -hmm. You know, at the same time, you know, in, in animation, you, you definitely, it's a lot easier to replicate the comic book look of a particular character. Um, you know, when you try to go from 2D to 3D in live action, uh, you know, there, there are challenges. Um, some of them are, are budgetary um, and some of them are creative um that that make it hard to do a one-for-one -one swap um you know it's a lot easier in animation but uh we, we had a blast doing the tie-ins um they were always really well received which is really nice and uh the cw is always very very uh enthusiastic and supportive about us doing them um and that's something that you know I, i'm not you know you don't you don't see all too often um or at yeah. least back when we were doing them uh they were they were kind of uh you know they were kind of unique. Um, so I, I have great affection for those, those animated tie-ins. Yeah, definitely. And, uh, you know, one of the biggest ones, um, that I thought was actually pretty good was, uh, you know, freedom fighters and the Ray, um, and also, 
I don't think he worked on this one, but uh, the Constantine one, those uh, those titans okay. are actually really great. Yeah, I didn't work on the Constantine one, but uh, you know, I will say those those guys at uh, Warner Brothers Animation um, are really phenomenal, and and they put so much love and care into everything that they do. They they were just a joy to work with because they they're the real deal, and and they're you know they approach it the same way we do, which is as a fan first. Um, and it was, it was, you know, really terrific getting a chance to collaborate with them all, all even briefly. Awesome. And then lastly, uh, we got this question on Twitter cause we kind of hyped up the interview a little bit. Cool. Um, so last question here. Um, so our fans are asking, uh, to share all the things Lenny, uh, Briscoe, um, from working, you know, working with him and his time on uh, law and order. What can you say? Oh gosh. Well, I loved, I mean, first of all, I, I loved working with Jerry Orbach. Um, you know, he was just an absolute delight and, and would keep you in stitches on the set, you know, in between takes. Um, and I look, I, you know, as any, any, any writers who have, you know, had the misfortune of being in a room with me, you know, I, I love dad jokes and I love puns and, <laughs> uh, you know, Briscoe is the ultimate pun master. Um, you know, to the point where a lot of times, you know, it, there was no writer's room on Law and Order. Everyone sort of worked on their own individual episodes, but writers would often come into my office and and ask me for a, a Briscoe button. Um, <laughs> you always had to, they always had to be really, really good because if they weren't good or if Jerry felt like he could, he could do it better, uh, do, you know, or improve on the joke, uh, he, he would. Um, so, you know, for me, the goal was always to, you know, write lines that Jerry would feel were good enough to deliver and that he didn't have to go fix. Um, so that was, that was a, a big part of, you know, the fun for me. Um, you know, uh, my, it's fine. My last, uh, episode of the, of the show was also Jerry's last episode. Oh, wow. Um, and, uh, it was, it was a real privilege to get to write him out of the show. That's awesome. And yeah, um, I actually don't have anything else. Um, do you, you know, um, I know, uh, with cons kind of, uh, re uh, recircling back, um, do you have any conventions that are coming up that you'll be at, um, any upcoming projects, um, uh, that we haven't covered that you would like to talk about? Good question. Well, this is funny. Like, uh, thanks. Um, you know, there's a lot of, there is a lot of stuff that I'm working on right now that unfortunately I can't talk about. Um, but I, I do, I did start up a couple months ago, a weekly newsletter called legal dispatch, which, uh, comes out, you know, most every Friday when I'm, when I'm on top of things, uh, <laughs> and it's, uh, markguggenheim.substack.com. And it's, it's just a good place to, you know, hear about what I've got coming up, you know, conventions I'm going to, interviews I've done, um, you know, projects I've got in the works, uh, you know, I'll, I'll throw in the occasional sort of thought or missive about screenwriting, um, you know, Hollywood stuff. It, it's a, it's a fun melange of, uh, of things just right at the end of the week. So um, if you're curious about what I'm up to, uh, that's a good place to check out. Awesome. And uh, where can we find you on Twitter or any other uh, online handles or social media? Yeah, uh, at Twitter, I'm at M. Guggenheim. And on Instagram, I'm at Mark Guggenheim. That's Mark with a C. Awesome. Yeah, uh, that pretty much wraps it up. I just want to say, again, it was an honor speaking to you. Thank oh, you so you. much. I really appreciate it. Oh, this um, was a lot of fun. I, I really <laughs> appreciate it. These were really great questions. Uh, this is it, The hour just flew by. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. You're, you're a wealth of knowledge. And um, yeah, thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, no, thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. It really means a lot. Artless.io.